0: Welcome to the latest episode of Redesign Your Life, the series dedicated to rethinking and building a better future, discovering new ways of doing and being, and redesigning what is the norm. Throughout this series, I speak to people all over the world about how we can redesign a better future, not only for ourselves, but for the future generations to come. My guest today is Mike Walsh, the CEO of Tomorrow, a global consultancy on designing companies for the 21st century. An international nomad and futurist, he advises some of the world's biggest organizations on digital transformation and disruptive innovation in this new era of machine intelligence. A prolific writer and commentator, Mike's views have appeared in a wide range of international publications, including Harvard Business Review, Inc. Magazine, Business Week, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. His latest book, The Algorithmic Leader How to Be Smart When Machines Are Smarter Than You, offers a hopeful and practical guide for reinventing leadership and organizations. Mike travels over 300 days a year worldwide, researching trends, collecting case studies, and presenting on the future of business and leadership. Hey, Mike. Hello. Hello. Hey, that
1: sounds
2: better. That's better.
1: Much better.
0: That's great. So so cool to catch up with you, Mike. Uh, we caught up a few weeks ago when we were all grounded um, in Sydney and um, saw that you had managed to make your way back to Sydney and um, you know be in your place in Bondi, which is really cool for you. Um, but normally you're traveling around the world. I know. It was
1: a... Uh... Yeah, it was it was quite scary, like getting out of London. It was, it, was, it was a bit like getting the last chopper out of Vietnam, you know. Yeah, man. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was very it was
2: very
0: happy to come back to Australia. Yeah, does it feel like a safe haven for you?
1: It it feels like a comfortable, warm, secure nanny state, uh, <laughs> 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 where the politicians are the are, are your headmaster, and they'll tell you off if you've been playing up at the tuck shop. Yeah. Uh, or, or not washing my hands or, you know. So so I do feel in the comfortable embrace of uh, people that treat me like children.
0: Um, it's been a really interesting time. And we, we've we known each other for just over 10 years, I guess. And um, when we worked together on yeah. the book, book Futuretainment, which was an incredible book that Fiden published of, uh, of your, um, what would you call it, your kind of philosophy on the future, etc.
1: and predictions. And it's really weird. It was kind of like... A- yeah, it's weird because I mean, I, at the time, I was really inspired, you know, by the kind of books that Marshall McLuhan was putting out in the in, in the in the sixties, mm. and uh, and I think this is one of those books which uh, I think it was interesting at the time, but I, I think when even now, ten years later and twenty years later, it'll be interesting to go back and look at it because it was, you know, when we were when we were talking about these ideas, it was we really wanted to express the philosophy of, of what we saw was happening as opposed to Really, a business
0: manual. Yeah, I mean, I think the the book is so relevant today. I was just looking through it um, fondly uh, this morning, and and just just looking at the kind of section dividers and things like "Yesterday the world changed, reset. Now it's your turn." I mean, that is just like wow. That was written. That was like written for for yes, you know, last week or what, five weeks ago when all this stuff happened. Change always appears. Well, there's one. There's one. Sorry, I was just going to say this. Sorry, go on. Cha- revolution. <laughs> change always appears incremental until it's too late. And again, he's like all these people who've been talking about change and talking about doing you know new business, new ideas, new new using technology in a in a a more effective way. Um, it's not until we've had this whole outbreak happen and kind of everybody being forced to work from home that people are actually beginning to realize that that actually needs to happen and it can happen and it must happen uh, to stay relevant. What's your take on that?
1: Absolutely, and well, there's, there's one chapter in this particularly that that I think is kind of poignant, and, and that was chapter ten, and was actually entitled "Viral: uh, One Becomes Many," mm-hmm. and it was it was basically about you know just just really a, a year or so prior, I'd I'd lived through the whole SARS epidemic in, in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and and this chapter was really reflecting on the fact that we were at the early stages of a highly connected. Networked globalized world, and how we can understand from epidemiology and the spread of viruses and pandemics what that can teach us about this emerging world of social media influences and, and what I was calling super spreaders in, mm. in respect of ideas rather than disease. Yeah, and it, it's just so interesting how that in the last 10 years obviously has become such a relevant. Uh, theory, not not just for media, but for disease itself. What, do, what did you do before
0: you were doing this? Have you always were you born a futurist, or <laughs> were you an accountant or something in
1: your earlier life, or what? You know, I, I I have a theory about this. If you find someone with an unusual job, if you go back far enough, you will usually find they were a failed lawyer. And <laughs> so is that uh, it—that was me. <laughs> yeah, I, uh a reformed I lawyer. Spent, uh, I, I spent a good six years uh, studying law, and uh, mm. and when I finished law school, I, I just had no idea what I was going to do. And I, you know, I uh, usually, if you're not, if, if you if you go, if you do one of these degrees, you either become an, if you're not going to be a lawyer, you become an investment banker or a consultant. Mm. And I, the idea of being a banker didn't appeal, so I, I went and actually was was offered a job to go work at McKinsey, mm-hmm. a big management consultant. firm. So. Yeah. But then, fortunately, I think for me and for McKinsey, um, something more interesting came along, which was the, the kind of the, the first explosion around the internet, the first, you know, uh, dot-com boom. Mm. And this was the late, late uh, mid to late 90s. And yeah. uh, I just thought, this is a once-in-a-life time opportunity where no prior experience or knowledge is required.
2: Mm. Anyone
1: can be a digital expert because it's only been around for a couple of years. So I just... Kind of never had a normal job after that. I, I uh, went and started up internet companies and started traveling a lot. And uh, and around the time we'd met, uh, it was after the first crash.
2: Mm. And
1: I'd actually started working for the Murdochs at, at News Limited, mm-hmm. doing digital strategy. Mm-hmm. And I was I was bored out of my mind because it was newspapers yep. and um, they, they weren't doing anything quickly. And so I thought I want to try and write about some of my experiences that I that I'd had, you know, seeing this emerging world, especially in China, Japan, and Korea. Mm-hmm. But I thought this is not a story that we can really tell uh, in sort of as a conventional business book. I need to find someone who's a visionary designer <laughs> uh, who really understands, you know, bringing the printed word to life. And then I think that's the fortuitous story about how our paths crossed.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it was. Um I remember when it, when it, when we met. I was just trying to work out what was a futurist, you know, um, and 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 what what did that mean? I mean, I guess I
1: should have been more um, more aware. Um, but you were but, very but, you were very suspicious of the internet, you know, when we first met. I remember, but, uh, and I think quite rightly, you were yeah, like, "This is this yeah, is not yeah. going to end well for any of us."
0: No, that's, def- that's <laughs> definitely. I mean, I'm. Uh, it's funny. I did a, a podcast last night with a guy called. Um, Tony Chambers, who was the editor, he was a creative director of Wallpaper Magazine, and then became the editor of it. And we both kind of talked with fondness about the days prior to computers, you know, the laying out magazines and doing, you know, design, etc. Uh, for, for publications, things like that. But the, the process that we went through prior to that, just my God, it was like, it was a lot of work. I'm not, I can't say it's not it still is a lot of work i, mean, I don't know what happened there it seems to be that we've got maybe we're doing much more than we were doing before um it, it's obviously made our lives yeah easier in terms of the speed of production but it seems to be we're doing far more as a result of that but laying out a book um i think is always a, yeah. a pleasure um it's definitely um and it's interesting doing a book i remember that's what i was questioning is what well, if you're doing a book on the future. What should should there be a book? Should it be something else? Is another way of um, communicating that.
1: Well, I am thinking we did a, If we'd done a a flash website, it wouldn't even be visible now. <laughs> yeah. And and that's the interesting thing that we actually did, we did a flash website, oh, we which did. you can't look at anymore. Actually, that was very nice. Yeah, and, but nice flash animation. is no longer supported. So, in a sense, that that sort of that digital construct, it, it, it actually has less permanence. Than something that's been around for a, th- a thousand years or more. Yeah. So it's, and I think this is where we kind of got things wrong ten or twenty years ago. We thought that digital was a substitution for analog. And I was always very interested in photography, and so I, 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 I trained on an old Hasselblad. I spent a lot of time in, you know, black and white, um, developing labs, working with chemicals, and. And, and, and I think there's a lot of people now who've never had that experience who've gone straight to doing filters on Instagram. Mm. Uh, but but what an experience of the analog world teaches you, whether it's photography or laying out a magazine or a book, is that it's just a process of thinking and, and construction and problem solving. And even though you work in a digital world, the analog thinking mechanism is as relevant as ever. Uh, it, they're not substitutes for each other. They There's kind of a dance. Between those two modes, because in the end humans are analog as well.
0: Yeah. Well, you seem to have a a charmed life. It looks certainly charming. If you're following you on Instagram, and you're you know in an airport in a in a nice suit and nice suitcase, and then beautiful lounges and hotels and stuff. Um, is it, is, is it as
1: good as it looks? <laughs> <laughs> Are, are you asking me? Is everything on Instagram as it appears? Oh, okay. is it very <laughs> really careful? Question. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, you just answered my
0: question. Um, you, you've obviously got a photographer following you around, um, or a very good tripod set up. Um, but I uh, know I'm just very impressed that obviously this is under people are looking for clues. Organizations presumably fly you all over the world, and they want their people to understand or be inspired by or question you know what they're doing now and 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 future proofing their businesses etc I guess that's kind of the predominant kind of need um, and the desire for getting you to um, you know to, to to talk to their people at you know uh, conferences and stuff
1: I think it's it's something different than it was to be a futurist uh, I would say and this is a relatively recent shift even ten years ago when I first started uh, most of what I spoke about were trends I'd seen in other parts of the world. So I used to spend a lot of time traveling to China and Japan, even India and Brazil, because my theory at the time was that, uh, as, as uh, William Gibson famously said, the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. So mm. if you could be more widely distributed than everybody else, if you could see things in a marketplace or on a street corner that would give you a hint under the right conditions. Um, what could be an incredibly new, new product or a new idea or a new service? How could you take something that the kids were doing on a chat uh, program in Sao Paulo? How could that influence the way you think about a brand launching in London? But I would say things are different now because to me, the real opportunity isn't so much around trends or uh, new shifts in consumer behavior. It's actually how organizations and even very boring industries, how they can be transformed now, uh, not just with technology, but with new ways of thinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is something, I think, which is going to be the, the catalyst that transforms our world. And now, now that we're in this pandemic, that's more important than ever. Mm. Uh, not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's purely a question of survival.
0: Mm. Well, obviously... For the last ten years, you've probably been talking about disruption, disruption, disruption. You know, disrupt yourself. You know, disrupt your business and your the way of thinking, etc. But this disruption that we've had over the last, you know, I don't know, three months now has been massive, isn't it? But I guess even in Australia with the fires, yeah, I think we're, the fires, we disruption now. Huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, and it's actually not nice. <laughs> we laugh about no. it, but it's actually not a pleasant thing. Um, it's hard to deliberately disrupt things isn't it because you know oh shit that's going to be uncomfortable or um, that might be that might take us to a, outside our comfort zone etc but when the when the world disrupts you it's actually when it's out of your control yeah. or initially it feels like it's out of your control it's not we haven't done it i mean we probably it's probably a consequence of humans and man doing things not not doing good things um, and the kind of the I, I don't know about you, but I just kind of I just kind of laid low for a bit, just trying to assess the situation. Uh, I couldn't react. I felt a bit down about it all, and uh, maybe I'm kind of more of a touchy-feely kind of person. But but I just kind of no, felt no,
1: I, I went I went I went through the same thing. It, it, it takes a while to process what this means. If you don't feel that, I think you're not you're not a particularly intuitive and sensitive person because after you know after COVID. You have to reassess all of your knowledge and your beliefs mm. and your priorities. Mm. Uh, I, I was even thinking about it. I mean, it, 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 can there be can there be comedy after <laughs> after COVID nineteen? You know, like is what what what, what is important anymore? It, it's a it's a bit like um, you know that that really touching and moving essay which says you know this, after Auschwitz there is no more poetry. Mm. Um, so when something is a civilization-scale event, which transforms not just a few but the many, and which not only leads in, in, in terms of direct tragedy in terms of lost life, but dislocates an entire civilization, mm. you have to reconsider. I think you know what's really at stake.
2: Yeah,
1: and and I think my pathway through that's been the realization that whether we truly believe it or not. On the other side of the pandemic will be a new world and there'll be a new world with new rules. There'll be winners and losers. Uh, there'll technology will have changed not only our lives, but the way businesses run.
2: Yeah.
1: And essentially, we are now living through the growing pains of a decade's worth of change that's been unleashed on us in 12 months. Yeah. How do you get everyone to shop online? Well, make sure they don't leave the house. Damn. How do you make sure organisations uh, can accommodate remote workers? Well, make everyone work from home mm.
2: um, immediately. How
1: how do you increase the use of robotics and drones? Well, factories won't run unless you deploy them. So, yeah. so I think on almost every level of society and industry, those changes are forcing us to speed up transformation.
0: So, so what was it, Mike, that that was holding us back then? Because obviously. You can see the benefit of it, um, but what 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 is it in Our human nature that stops us from going well? Okay, that looks interesting. That that could be useful for me, but let's just park that for the moment. You know, it seems like this pandemic has obviously um, pushed things on massively. I mean, I see that in all the conversations I have with all my clients or other competitors or people people in the industry is that they've really woken up. Uh, they, you know everyone had their yeah. head, head in the sand and kind of felt sad for a bit but then they're going okay right i'm going to i'm going to get on and fight this i'm going to i'm going to um do what i can with the technology i have at at hand and the technology's obviously changed dramatically in the last 10 years too so it's fairly intuitive it's fairly accessi- accessible it's cheap um it works um and i think yeah. that, that, that just i i one of the question was around what holds us back from Doing this proactively ourselves previously,
1: I think there's an inertia that comes from uh, things working the way they are, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and evolution is like this. Uh, I mean, we all, species only evolve when they're when they're pressed to uh, when new circumstances change, and there are winners and losers, and there are survivors and and those that don't. So. If we are not pushed to change, I don't think there's any real incentive, even though consciously you know there's a benefit. And, and this is really, I think you can see this in almost every aspect of behavior. <laughs> we know we should eat less sugar, we shouldn't smoke, we shouldn't drink as much. But unless you have some sort of crisis, most people don't really uh, get religion and, uh, and change their behavior. And organizations are the same. I mean, people have been talking about digital transformation for at least a decade. Mm. And they will they will draw up plans, they'll get in people like me to come and talk about it. They'll be excited for forty five minutes and then they'll go back to printing things out, you know, on, on paper and, and getting people to take memos and, and they're doing all sorts of ridiculous stuff. Mm. Uh, so we kind of consumed the future as an idea. It was something that we got excited to think about and play with and and, 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 and write about and, and put out content videos about. But when push came to shove, most people weren't really prepared to go all in on it mm. um, until they had to.
0: And so, so what happened with you in terms of, um, like, you literally would do how many? How many events were you doing a year?
1: Like, oh, it was crazy. I, I was. Uh, I mean, I, I think last year I did almost a million miles. Uh, uh, I think I've, I've got this written down somewhere, but hundreds of cities. I gave about a hundred talks. And spent three hundred days on the road. Uh, I'm sure if one of these days they ever have, uh, you know, international courts for e- eco crime, I would be called upon, <laughs> you know, to explain my personal uh, contribution to climate change. And so, and you still look down, to and, it and and down that you. wasn't really. But I, I don't think that was necessary personally. I mean, I, I I've been arguing for more digital content yeah. and ways of delivery for a long time. Of course, you know, I, I think we may have swung too far to the other side now. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been an interesting adjustment from that point of view. What, what do you think of the world? I mean,
0: you've seen more of the world than I have or probably ever will do. I mean, I've seen a lot of places. But to be on that road constantly, uh, to be on those different cities, meet all those different organizations, all those kind of people, cultures, etc., um, you know, high-end
1: resorts. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, do, well, it's, it, you do it I don't in think it's even, it. I don't think it's even that. It, it's not so much that. It's more that uh, what always surprises me are the convergences and divergences around culture and behavior and society. Mm. And, and, and really in terms of what are people's hopes and aspirations and what's important. Yep. You know, we, we have an idea of places like um, China being sort of inscrutable and mysterious and vast Russia being you know having secret agendas and and, and 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 Africa being wild and untamed and yet you know when you go to these places in Africa you find incredible amounts of sophistication in 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 Russia you find wonderful people you know who just want to get on with living their life and in China similarly you know it, it is a very ancient and civilized culture that is now doing things with technology that are truly extraordinary.
2: Mm.
1: So, I always think that when you travel a lot, it gives you a unique perspective on how interconnected we are, yeah. but also how similar we are. Yeah, in, I was going to ask that. In, in, in so many ways.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if we felt that that we're all kind of basically the same. Do do you feel positive yeah. about um, uh, you know us human beings? What what you've seen? Do you think there's hope for us?
1: Oh, absolutely. We are um, ruthlessly resilient uh, and I I think inventive when our backs are against the wall. Mm -hmm. And it sometimes takes a moment of collective crisis uh, to really understand what brings us together. The the danger we have now, of course, is... um, is digital media in, in the sense that it's very hard to know how to trust information, mm-hmm. um, the distribution of information, who is behind it, uh, what's real. Mm-hmm. Um, so the very tools which can connect us can also divide us
2: mm-hmm. and
1: bring us apart mm-hmm. and accelerate and exacerbate tensions and prejudices and bias. Uh, uh, I'm not talking about any one platform here. It's, it's just the nature of of the world, world we we live in, it's not just human viruses we have to worry about. It's idea viruses as well, um, which can be just toxic and terrifying.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's also interesting. Again, talking to Tony yesterday about you know the the craft of making a publication in the old days. You know, making a having an editor, writer, subs, photographer, editor, and all that. It's, there, was, there was a, a team that, that, you know, a very experienced team that put publications together, and there was a certain number of publications printed, for example. Um, but it, it's, isn't it incredible the thought at that moment in time that you could just sit on your phone and, and publish anything that you wanted to at any moment in time, make any spelling mistakes you wanted <laughs> or, or indeliberately, um, but have that voice and that global voice? Um, just, um, it would just be unimaginable. Um, 20 years ago. It's just, it's quite incredible it, it, how fast it's well, changed. Uh,
1: we, we, weirdly though, I, I, it actually, in some ways it felt like you had more of a voice 20 years ago. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember the really early days of the World Wide Web, mm. like 95, 96. If you create an interesting website, everyone who was online could actually see it. Yeah. In, in that, you might be listed in Yahoo's 25 cool sites today. day.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and, uh, And there was actually a directory of everything that was interesting. And uh, in a strange way, in those days, there was more of a a truly eclectic global audience for information. Mm. Uh, The hardest thing now is actually getting anyone to pay attention to anything. And, and, And I think that is what drives clickbait and misinformation is that generally the people that have the capabilities to weaponize information and attention don't always have the best, don't have your best interest at heart. No. What, what do you feel about, um, which is, which is for designers, right? I mean, if you're, you're in the, you're in the business of, of designing information.
0: Yeah. You could say we're in the business of persuasion. We could be in the business of, you know, selling um, in a, in a more kind of, I guess, a hardcore way. Um, but I, th- I was just kind of wondering. Yeah. To,
1: to, but the, 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 go on. No, I was going to say, I mean, it it, it raises new ethical issues um, that never existed before. Uh, I mean, if you're in charge of some, you know, secret state-sponsored misinformation um, crack unit, you know, whose job is to to start up rumors about uh, 5G towers uh, and spread that globally, are those in a way guerrilla designers in that they're Mm -hmm. marshalling attention and spreading ideas? Yeah. I, I mean is there a way you can you can learn from that in a positive way or or is using hacking that medium in itself something that is intrinsically amoral?
2: Hmm.
0: Oh, wait, actually on that 5g is that not true then <laughs> is that uh <laughs> is that just
1: a conspiracy i am I'm, I'm really i as, as i said it i instantly regretted it because <laughs> you know this is one of those I, I just know that there's going to be a Certain percentage of this audience that are immediately going, are going to switch off this podcast because it's, it's 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 you know when when did information and science and uh, and belief become so polarized? Mm. So I think I'm going to leave that. There. Okay, all right.
0: <laughs> you know something that I don't. Um, and then obviously AI and uh, you know the prediction that in well, I don't know the the exact figures. You're the figures guy, but. 10 years' time that 40% of the population will be unemployed because of, you know, bots doing our job. Do you reckon that's going to happen?
1: Well, we, we were chatting about this the other day, and I think it's such an interesting topic, um, especially for creatives and designers, which mm. is, do, do you have... Um, should you be excited or fearful about AI's impact on your job? Mm. And, uh, you know, do you see things like Canva as a, as a threat to your business uh, in that it's leveraging technology to allow people to do things that they maybe previously had a designer do. Mm -hmm. And and the way I see it is that AI, first of all, AI is not something we should anthropomorphize. I mean, I don't think, I personally don't think that an AI is going to wake up any one day and look around and go, okay, which humans can I either kill or take their jobs? Mm -hmm. So for me, AI has always been a tool and it's a tool designed by humans. And the really smart humans will use those tools to be able to do things that they weren't able to do before. So for me, AI doesn't take away the job of a creative or a designer. A designer or creative using AI can be far more effective and powerful than they were before. And this is something we've seen before. I mean, if you look at it in the computer revolution, computers didn't take jobs away from people. People with computers, uh, people who could use InDesign and Photoshop Mm-hmm. Um, these were the people who took away jobs from people that re- couldn't or refused to embrace the new way of looking. That's true. What about data? So, you know, I, I mean, what, what do you think about this, Vince? I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you have some sort of uh, frost AI, which has studied all decisions that you and your designers have made in the past, that can probably anticipate the plot. That you would likely choose, or even create one, based on you know your previous decisions and preferences, and can generate options. Do you see that as a threat? Um, Does that extend your capabilities? Uh, In essence, is that the future of your firm? Like an an AI that kind of encapsulates your personal uh, intellectual property?
0: Yeah, but I think um, yeah, I, I talk about this a lot, and with various people and data scientists and people like that. And you know, part of me is looking for that that solution, and then part of me is just dreading it. Um, I really am dreading it because I think mm-hmm. I think once someone cracks that, then it, it it it's people say that creativity is the last area that's going to be uh, there. All, all there will always be jobs for creative people. I'm I'm really not so sure. I really think that if AI uh, can do what they're predicting is going to do, and, and can do it really quickly, immediately. I mean, thousands of options. I mean, Adobe already have uh, yeah. uh, have tools for that already. They give you thousands of layouts if you want it. Um, I can't remember what's called now, Samurai or something rather. It's called some some program. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's. I'm I'm very nervous about that. I'm very nervous that that it could just oblique, you know, delete the whole industry um, with the first person that cracks that. Um, they, yes, they may make shitloads of money, um, but they would actually destroy the whole the whole industry as as we know it. Um, the people that are out there who are the crafting way on design and and it's been the craft all along, and it's a very personal expression of what they do, even though it's a commercial exercise. I equally think that they're the ones that and they've you know they're very um, I guess blinkered in a way that to thinking that this may not that this isn't coming, and I, I really do think it's coming incredibly quickly and it could be, you know, within five years we could be all redundant. Um, and that, that that does worry me. And I do think that it's, it's hard
1: it, as
2: hard w- as
1: No no I, I was gonna agree with you that that it it um, it may not take out all the jobs, but it's gonna transform everyone's job. Um, and it may create more when takes all market in that uh, certain brands or individuals' brands attached to these platforms will become globally famous, but it will be less of a cottage industry of, of small designers. Mm. I
2: don't
1: know, my, my worry is what would those people be doing? I mean, you, you wouldn't use... I mean, why would you use freelancer.com to find designers? You know, um, someone who's just, you know, modifying clip art or something like that. When I mean, that, that's exactly the, the market that AI, I think, will wipe out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah i think once the I mean, so high-end designers
1: you know um i think we'll will leverage this technology
0: i think that uh, a lot of designers that i know um are also very fearful or not even fearful not the right word i think kind of are not interested in data they're not interested in the the science behind or the data the the numbers etc around A business or whether it's a a startup or whether it's a product or whether it's um, a brand, et cetera, or an experience. I think that people tend to be, a lot of designers are very much focused on using their intuition um, to solve problems. They Mm -hmm. they feel their way through uh, an opportunity or a problem or a brief and come back with a humanized kind of uh, idea, um, something which could be very uh, distinctive and relevant for uh, a project. Um, but often I believe that they also don't, you know, they can't guarantee that that will be a success. You know, winning a design award is not a success. Like winning a design award, sorry, winning a design award can be a success in terms of your career and your exposure, but it doesn't mean the fact that you've won a design award that it guarantees that that product or that project you did has been a successful in, has been successful for for your client or in the market. You know what I mean? And I think that there's, a, there's yeah. a disconnect, there's a deliberate disconnect that actually, if you think about art and commerce, um, you know, I was really bad at, at school. Um, I was bad in sixth form, but I was good at art. And my right brain was naturally stronger uh, than my left brain. And you'll find that with a lot of designers, a lot of creative people who are on the spectrum or very right ba- brain um, very strong right brain capability, is that the left brain, which is the commerce side, the numbers, the data, um, kind of, they're less good at that and therefore less attracted to that. Even business. I mean, often designers, very creative designers, aren't really interested in business. I know that's a generalization, but that's what Mm. I've kind of discovered over, experienced over years. I
1: don't know. I mean, in a way, they are. They are are processing data, but it's subconscious. And because in the end, um, we are the ultimate expression of a biologically evolved supercomputer, machine learning system. Mm -hmm. But it's all biological, and so they take their what they think is intuition or internal creativity is actually just a very complex internal algorithm that takes in inputs and overlays it against um, learning data from like thousands of other iterations and come up with a solution that they feel is humanistic, but maybe it could also be done by an algorithm. And and, and I, I think one of the, the difficulties is that sometimes if you're a creative person, you feel like there is one answer, um, which maybe you find aesthetically um, whole. But from a client's perspective, maybe the right approach is to have five or 500 or 5,000 iterations of that and test it. With data and A/B tests, and and the answer lies in the data. And I think that's a very confronting thought. Yeah. Um, the designers in big tech companies have a very different relationship with the things that they produce than if you brought in a, a you know a very famous global creative to think about a problem.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I, I think that's fascinating. That yeah. in terms of that that approach, and I. I we talk about it sometimes. It's around often when you're when you have an idea, um, no matter who you are, you you get excited. There's an energy change in your body. You get goosebumps. You feel, oh my god, oh my god, that's that's a bloody good idea, or you feel it with your whole, you feel it with your whole body. Um, you know, so, yeah. Um, sometimes people say it's better than sex, but I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm I'm addicted to that.
1: Feeling. No, I, I get that with I get that with writing. You know, like every time i I'm not super prolific, but you know when I've come up with an idea for a book, I can feel it. It's, it's electric. It's like all, the, all the, the nerves and neurons have all connected and fired at once. And, and this is it. This is, a, this is really an original new idea. And, and it's weird. Like Once you've got that, everything else flows immediately. It's like you've made a, a hard line connection to some sort of cosmic source of creativity. And, and then it becomes easy.
0: Yeah, I totally totally agree with that. And your whole you feel so committed to it, don't you? Because of that feeling. Yeah. And any anything yeah, less less of thing. that, any feeling less of that, you really like uh don't really I'm not sure, you know, you can have more lethargic around the idea. But I find that interesting just the yeah. often uh if someone talks to me about a problem or a project or a brief or whatever. I just start seeing ideas, visuals in my head. I start seeing what you could call the future, I start seeing what it could look like in in the in the world. You know, an idea. My brain works it out. It starts popping pictures into my head. It combines things.
1: You might be a bit synesthes- You might be a bit of a synesthesiac, You know, like you know, they say that there are some people who uh, they smell ideas and they they hear thoughts. Oh really? Yeah, I, I just a lot of creative people are. Yeah,
0: I, I just see the. Um, I just kind of see visuals in my head. And then I spend a lot of time kind of trying to visualize that visual, uh, if you like. Um, and a lot of our job is actually visualizing the future. You know, we kind of, even when we present to a client, we kind of show, this is what your business could look like. We mock it up on, on the shelf and uh, on, a, on a bag, on a T-shirt, <laughs> on a website, all these different things. Um, and it's highly convincing and it's highly realistic. And it's actually it's an illusion um, of this could be real. Or is this real? And I guess the the, the and that's something which I think is, um, obviously AI could do that as well. But I just think in terms of... Um,
1: no, no, actually, you know, I, I think that's actually the exact bit that you can't do. In that, this is where I think humans play such an important role in, in a process, is that the ability to weave a narrative and a story, you know, to create a consensual illusion that makes other people then believe in that. That comes, that comes deeply from, from knowing what it is to be human. So you need you need to have a context around that. So I think in the very near future, um, creative and graphic options will be able to be developed by AI. AI will know you better than you know yourself.
2: Mm. It'll know exactly
1: how you would potentially uh, solve a particular problem. Yeah. But it will generate options. and But you will know with your in, intrinsic human context which solution is probably going to be the better one and the one you can build into a broader story that you can tell around the brand and to the client. Uh, Of course, over time, the AI will will learn from your behavior and maybe get better at narrowing the options. But to tell that story, to interpret the client's needs and problems, that interface is always going to have to be biological. Um, even if the heavy lifting is done by machines in the future. And we see this in architecture, if you think about it. I mean, if you look at these big firms today, um, they're, you know, they're, they're not only are they not hand drawing and hand drafting, they, they're using CAD, but they're using um, parametric design. So they're using algorithms to uh, lay out buildings, to work out where the views are in buildings, mm. um, to rotate and make adjustments because, there's just in a very complex structure. It's just beyond the scope of any team of human beings anymore.
0: Wow. not incredible?
1: This, this was something I actually wrote about in my most recent book, um, which is called The Algorithmic Leader, How to Be Smart When Machines Are Smarter Than You. Mm. And I wanted to write a story that was hopeful about a new generation of leaders and creative professionals. Um, you know, So I spoke to artists and architects engineers and salespeople, uh, business leaders, inventors, because I wanted to get a sense about how a new generation was using AI and data and didn't feel like it was replacing them, but they were using it to augment their capabilities and do more than they could before. Because to me, that was the more interesting story than robots taking our jobs. It was how does humans plus robots do things that we couldn't do in the past?
0: Mm. And what was the outcome? What was the feedback from that?
2: The, the people it's, it's, that embraced it.
1: Yeah, it's been interesting. I think people were surprised by the book a little bit because there were so many stories in it of, of real people doing things. And, um, and uh, it, it had a really strong response from people um, who wanted something hopeful to believe in. And I think it's become more important now than it was because what is going to happen with COVID-19 and, and the pandemic is that we're going to see, like we saw with the last financial crash, an acceleration of, of technologies and automation, AI. Uh, so this is the moment when we as human beings have to think about upgrading our capabilities, um, understanding data and accepting it more. Because if we don't, we're, we're really at risk of our professions and practices um being reimagined around and potentially without us
0: what would be uh, say five new jobs that have come out of this that you reckon would be you know people yeah younger people should be looking at as an, as an option
1: I I think you know maybe a simple way of, uh, of answering this is a very tricky question you asked me then <laughs> is you take any, take any profession and any job and ask yourself, how would this change if we were to add computation and AI to it? Mm. Because there really is no profession, um, no practice, industry, or skill that isn't changed by computation. One of the interesting people I interviewed for my, my, my book was a uh, astronomer um, uh, called Andrew Vanderberg from the mm. University of Austin, Texas. And he got this phone call out of the blue one day, and there was an engineer at Google. And Google was looking around for interesting use cases for machine learning. And so they thought, well, astronomy is an example where you collect a lot of data. And so the Kepler telescope was this, um, it's called an exoplanet hunter. And uh, what an exoplanet hunter, is, it looks for uh, other star systems like ours, but not, not in our solar system. So they were looking for Earth-sized planets. And this engineer said well, to um, to Andrew Vanderberg, he goes, well, what if we were to train an AI to do what astronomers normally do, which is interpret the data and, and, and find Earth-like planets? So they did this. And after a week or so, they started discovering planets that, you know, prize-winning astronomers had completely missed. Mm. And it was really the beginnings of a new profession, um, a computational astronomer. So I think every profession is going to have stories like that. It Mm. could be archaeology, it could be law, it could be accounting, it could be design. Mm. But you have to ask yourself, what does it now mean to become an an algorithmic designer, Mm. to become an algorithmic architect, to become um, an algorithmic doctor? Uh, How does merging your capabilities with technology change what you can do?
0: Yep. Brilliant. Love that. And not to be fearful of it, or, or I guess,
1: pretend that it's not going no. to happen. Well, yeah, that, that, that's the other one. Yeah.
0: But how? How do? How? I guess the question is: How do people start to move towards that? Like just, I guess, it's exploration and asking oh. questions, meeting different people.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's experimentation. Uh, it's being open to learn new skills. It's actually seeking those skills out, whether it's uh, you know, an introduction to data or machine learning to look in your own field. What, what tools are being used? Um, and how are people using them in, in, in interesting ways? Mm. And if no one's doing it, is there another field where they're use, doing stuff that you could potentially integrate or imitate? Um, or be the first to do it in, in your area? Yeah. So, uh, there's, there's no, there's no rule book around this. Because the minute there is, it actually won't be as interesting or important anymore. So the very fact that it is is a bit of an uncharted territory should excite people because it's an opportunity like we saw uh, 20 years ago at the early days of the internet where there are no experts, mm. where there is no set path. And that means you don't have to walk the path that everyone had to walk before. Mm. You don't have to work your way up through a hierarchy and try and prove yourself. The sheer fact that no one's done it before is, is actually a huge opportunity.
0: Yeah. Do you feel, I don't know this probably sounds weird, but this pandemic, do you think it's, is it, has it been good for you? <laughs> it's like, how are you going? <laughs> I've told you guys this for years now. Um, it's happened. Uh, uh, it's forced change. I don't know. I, I, uh,
1: it, it's so hard to, to really have a coherent thought around this because I see so much suffering mm. and uh, so many people I know are affected. And it's not even the virus, to be honest. It's the economic impact around this. Mm. Uh, we're not even anywhere near the bottom of, of that. No. And, and maybe I think with hindsight in five or 10 years, we'll look back and go, that was a truly transformative moment in history where we, we, we started with one world and we walk through a door into a completely different world, mm. and I think that's what the feeling is going to be when we all come out of quarantine, like however long that takes. Yeah. We're going to look around and go, "We've we've literally fallen through a wormhole, and we're living in a in a parallel reality." Yeah. And uh, you know that's the thing about living through history; it's not necessarily pleasant, but it is it is awe-inspiring. And I think <laughs> I feel terrified, but I, I'm in awe.
0: Of what I can see happening around us right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, what human resilience, despite all this?
1: Yeah. You know what yeah. I, I, like,
0: I quite like um, is that we've all been living this ridiculously fast lives. People, you know, rushing around constantly. I got three kids and two dogs and a business and a whole bunch of people, lots of things. It's always been I've always been running from 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 very early age. I try to fit it all in.
1: You you listed that in order of complexity, didn't you? Yeah.
0: <laughs> was it was it the kids first?
1: <laughs> it was kids, then the dog, then the business. Yeah, yeah.
0: well, no, I think yeah, the business looks easier in uh, in respect to that. But no, my kids are cool now. They're older and they're they're looking after themselves and they can eat by themselves and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I just I've noticed around me, um, which I thought was really interesting. It feels like. It looks like we're kind of going back in time to neighborhoods where people were out riding bikes in the street, you know, kicking balls, walking dogs, families playing together, and it's like this is really bizarre. Like, where have all these people come from, and how come they're all all of us all, over a very short period of time? They've seemed to have reconnected. I mean, I look at my uh, my office um, home office window, and there's a there's a family whose house backs onto mine. They got a beautiful pool and everything. And they're never out there. They're never in the garden. They're never in the pool. Um, and now they're out there every day, and they're all you know singing, skipping, <laughs> uh, you know, picking roses. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it, the, the dad's out there wow. exercising every day. It
1: sounds like it sounds like you're living next to the Von Track family.
0: No, it's it it's a bit like that, and I, and I've just noticed that just around <laughs> everywhere that in the park, in Centennial Park, in Queens Park, coffee shop, that there seems to be the technology is. Is connected us and still connects us through, uh, enables us to do what we do, uh, like we're all doing now on the phone or meetings, etc. But it's the human connection, which has also, I think, been the physical connection, even though we're being quarantined. The dreaded time of being isolated with your family or maybe isolated by yourself. Um, that is true isolation. Um, but it, it actually has, seems to have brought people together in back to kind of traditional values and, to, to, you know, that human inter- interaction, yeah. making more time for each other, being gentler, uh, positivity out of this kind of craziness. It seemed to be quite
1: encouraging for me. Have you noticed yeah, that? Yeah, I think, I think that is a positive side of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we're, we're all in our own ways reconnecting at a more human level. Um, and it's a wonderful time for family. Yeah, and, and for those relationships because we think uh, about
0: the future we think
1: although it about really it, it it really does depend on where you are in the world though I, uh, yeah of course australia is a little bubble yeah i yeah, think yeah. Yeah, you right. know in the middle of nowhere uh, and uh it, it's hilarious that you know the, the government's been coming out and talking about potentially lifting some restrictions and they're not going to open restaurants yet but they will allow picnics and i thought picnics who goes on picnics <laughs> um, it's almost like there's this you you know there's this 19 uh, 60s or 70s version of australia which uh, i think people sort of are thinking that we can go back to a a simpler time of, of picnics and family board games and um and and caravan park holidays uh so <laughs> yeah. it, it is it is interesting, I think, from a nostalgic point of view. Um, but I think, in that respect, Australia is very blessed. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, oh, thanks. That was my beautiful, idyllic kind of moment there. But yeah, no, no. I, I, no. <laughs> I know. No, I, uh, <laughs> I,
1: I. I, I, I actually am truly. I, I. It, you know what they say? It's, it's like in the Matrix. This may be an illusion, but it, I, it, I'd rather have the illusion than the the gritty reality that we're inside. Sort of, you know pods controlled by machines uh, i'll eat the steak you know so yeah, yeah. Uh, if this is an illusion I'll, I'll 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 take it well i think that that there's the there's
0: the other side to the technology and we think of the future um we think of the future in terms of um technology and and, and you know etc and uh bots and all this kind of stuff and what we don't talk enough awful lot about it is the is the human side of it which is the and it might look like going back to the 60s and being very kind of romantic and um idyllic i guess um but i think that the prior to this is that there's been a huge reaction to uh you know mental health um issues caused by technology uh caused by the saturation of of us being addicted to our phones and, and and needing to be um you know i guess Manipulated by what we see is not necessarily the truth on um, all forms of medium, media, and um, yeah, I don't know. I, I certainly uh, go through phases where I feel absolutely exhausted from observing, you know, the observing of of what others are doing, um, whether it's our industry, whether it's people's social lives, whether it might be. It's just we just have so much access to the to the world in, at our, at any moment in time. It's really hard to switch off, and probably people yeah. don't encourage switching off. Perhaps maybe we kind of thought well, that that was we a
1: benefit. Are, we're not we're not wired to switch off. In that, if you look at our our evolution evolutionary behaviour, uh, whether it's mirror neurons or the fact that we are inherently social animals that learn by watching what other people are doing, and and that kind of gossipy side of our personalities is one of the evolutionary traits that kept us alive. Mm. So social media is like cognitive crack, you know, for for human beings. Yeah. It it is impossible to ignore. Yeah. And it does make us unhappy in that it creates an illusion, you know, as we were talking about before, you know, is your Instagram feed real? Of course it's not real because it's selective and yeah. in any narrative you can take the most tragic story and just re edit it to look completely different and, and i think that's that's a, a something that a lot of people struggle with um in that this constant uh, barrage of information about what other people are doing creates incredible psychic stress um even if you're not aware of it
0: yeah well are you finding that around the world when you go to events etc that is there some cultures that are more um you know it, 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 using technology in a, a more balanced way or are, are we all kind of at the same level of just this total addiction
1: I think we're at div- I think we're at different levels of advanced addiction in that some societies who had this before us have gone through it earlier um, you know way before the iPhone I mean it's interesting we when we met the iPhone had been out for about 12 months mm. so it was, it was a really interesting moment in history where we just started to see a glimpse of a, of a very different world.
2: Mm.
1: But other cultures had had that long before. So if you looked at Japan, China, and Korea, before the iPhone, they had very sophisticated mobile devices that were capable of playing music and taking photos and downloading content. Mm. So they had that. And because they had that, they had the problems as well. So some of the first cases of internet addiction were in, in Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the, the first cases of social isolation were in Japan. Mm. So so I think, you know, um, not everyone is experiencing this at the same level, but it's universal human condition.
0: It's mm. interesting too. <clears throat> I mean, I've, I've always you know, traveled and worked uh, around the world and, you know, I work wherever I am on a laptop. I mean, before it used to be, you know, physical, physical job It's less physical now than it ever has been. And, and today I can literally run my business from my phone. I don't, I don't, I can look at designs. I can, you know, send, you know, information, uh, keep the business running through my mobile phone, which is incredible to think of what it used to be involved with running a business before. Um, It's that kind of nomadic. I don't know know if it's nomadic through deliberate being nomadic, or whether it's the the technologies that enabled that. Maybe I always (laughs) I'm just thinking out loud. Um, Maybe maybe I've always was nomadic, and maybe I'm very unsettled in terms of um, having a a base and um, you know just 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 being at home every day like this is actually for me was very unsettling at first. Um, now I feel more. Comf- yeah. I feel more comfort in being at home. I feel home now. Kind of makes I understand home better than I did before. Like seven weeks ago, it's not a two-week holiday. I'm not sick for three days. It's actually it's seven days of. Not, we're not locked down like other places have been, but still seven seven weeks of being uh, spending a huge amount of time at home, cooking, spending time with the kids, working from home, hanging out, all that kind of stuff. I don't know where I'm going with this. For Christ's sake, I think but, what you're um,
1: experiencing, though, Vince, is is something bigger than you know. Should we be able to work from home or work from the office? It, it, it's actually that location shouldn't matter. Mm. Um, yeah. And this is this is a, a theme I've been exploring lately. Now that as you I'm um, stuck at home, I've created, I've been working on this new series, a video series called "New Rules for a New World." Yeah, YouTube.
0: it looks so cool.
1: And uh, the there was an episode I just released called "There Is No Remote Work, Only Work," and I think that's what we're discovering mm. is that in the end, it won't. It sh- when this crisis ends, I think the lesson we'll have learned is that yes, you know, we now work from home, um, but sometimes being together in, in, a, in an office it, it works as well. But the important thing is it shouldn't matter where you are. So. If you are on the other side of the world, you should have as much influence as somebody who's sitting in the notional head office. And that uh, the ability to be able to be effective and useful um, re- regardless of vocational presence. This is something that I think is, that we are experiencing and learning at the moment. And, mm. and that to me is the future of work, is that it is about work, not about where it is.
0: Mm. I guess it depends on the job though. I mean, if you're building cars, it's different to, um, you know,
1: designing. Maybe that, that's a, that's an interesting one, you know, because I, um, uh, one of the people I interviewed recently for an article I was writing was the chief digital officer of Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mars, as, as I'm sure you know, is both a, a father and a owner of pets. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. they make a lot of, uh, a lot of good products. But he was saying that, uh, with the crisis, a lot of their factories were having to use more automation and augmented reality. So sometimes they were having a specialist engineer who was no longer on the factory floor, but he would dial in essentially through technology mm. and through augmented reality glasses and be able to diagnose a problem um, or make suggestions. So to me, it, it, it's criminal that in this time of crisis there they're actually factories stopped. Mm. Um Because to me, your factory should never stop and and we should be using robots to make sure we have 24-7 operations. Mm. And people should be able to be at home and work on factory Mm. lines because their job shouldn't be standing there physically and and making adjustments. Mm. No human should do that. They should be looking and thinking about how to design better processes and systems and and leverage robotics and data.
0: Mm. What do you think about I mean, obviously, the, I think 80% of the world lives in cities and the cities have been in a constant state of de, uh, design and evolution and, you know, becoming pretty sophisticated places. Um, it's interesting when, we, when you look at the situation quite right now, and I'm, I'm doing the same, going, well, you know what? I'm based in Sydney. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, hang on, why am I based in Sydney? Because it's just the physicality of being here and maybe the, the history of being here. But I don't. I could be sitting. You know, I'm sitting in Sydney right now. But I could be sitting in a farm in the countryside. I could be sitting in another country. I could. I'd still. I'm still me, and I'm still having the same communication. The location is irrelevant, right? And I thought that was quite bizarre situation. Like the physicality of our studio, uh, where we all come to meet every day. But since the last seven seven weeks, we've all been working in our own homes. We're still doing our job. Some people like it. Working from home. Some people don't like working from home, but we're still getting on and doing what we do every day, and it really, really kind of changed the whole. For me, just thinking right now about the the physicality of home. Well, I guess it's like the people have always talked traditionally about, you know, working nine to five. You know, you work at somewhere, nine to five, and then you go home. Um, And then it became kind of over the last, I don't know, 20 years for me, it's become very blurred. I don't work nine to five. I work 24 seven, but it's not, I don't see it as work. I see (laughs) this is, this is my life, you know, this is my life and I enjoy it. And it's not, um, you know, there's times it's tougher than other times, but mostly it's great. I'm privileged. I'm very excited to be alive and doing what I do, but it could, I could be doing it anywhere. And in a way, this kind of, this pandemic has kind of leveled everybody that like, why couldn't i be doing working on a project in new york why couldn't i be working on a project in london you know it uh, from sydney and it's changed i think people's perception client's perception even because they're all working from home is they want it doesn't really matter if someone's in sydney versus being you know around the corner it's interesting moment in time where you actually think about your location and how and your network and your the physical versus the virtual, I guess. And, you know, for a long time I had to yeah, really show... Your,
1: show your, your virtual displacement versus your physical one. Yeah,
0: for a long time I had to show the physical studio. This is us. We're a credible business, mm. you know, invested in the space and the people and everything. And so we're legit, you know. But we're still legit. Mean, I remember when I started like 27 years ago, I was in the same situation. I was working from home in my spare room. Um. And I've kind of come full <laughs> circle. Do you know what I mean? But but then I was trying to prove, you know, reassure people I could do the work of a corporation, of a business, of a credible business, but I'm, I'm just an individual working from home. And I think it's just that, I find that really interesting, that um, change of perception, the acceptance of the broader world that you can, you know, working from home in a way has become initially it was a shock and um, unusual but it's now become the norm right it's becoming acceptable yeah any generation
1: I, I don't think I don't think offices are going to go away though but we probably won't think of them as offices there'll they'll be more like the way co-working spaces run I mean there they are places where people will go for social interaction and, and and the unexpected interactions that come I mean that to me is the reason why we still need physical spaces and also cities. I mean, as you said, there are so many reasons not to live in a city. It's expensive. It's dangerous, mm. uh, both in terms of crime and 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 now health, uh, and it's inconvenient. But there are lots of reasons why you'd still want to live in Sydney or London or New York or Shanghai or Tokyo. It's because they are um, they are vibrant and they are. unpredictable and you're more likely to cross paths with someone whose ideas influence or shape you or become a collaborator or a friend or lover you know that that kind of those random connections um, are what are so important I think when it comes to creativity there was this uh, interesting study done by these um, theorists Jeffrey West and uh, Louis Bettencourt and they're basically called cities' um, social reactors mm-hmm. because they they everything that 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 we consider as downsides, you know, from a creati- creativity standpoint, those random mm-hmm. links between networks are what drive productivity.
0: There's, there's an interesting, there's a quote that we had in our Frost magazine um, that, you know, we had a chat uh, when we were publishing this. And you said, the key to survival in a time of transformation is to stay focused on the customer. And that's Amazon's real secret, total customer obsession. And I guess that's still relevant, probably even more so today, right?
1: Wait, who said that?
0: You said
2: that. <laughs> really? Oh, wow, that's smart! <laughs> oh my god, you don't remember that?
0: I pulled it out no. of a longer piece, I think. <laughs> but I thought that that was—I um, don't remember the things
1: I did five minutes
2: ago. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I pulled it out at the time, and I pulled it out again. I just, I just for me, it kind of humanized um, the conversation around kind of focusing on the customer versus focusing on the technology.
1: Yeah, I, and, and, and and you know even if you're even if you're incredibly data driven and you're you, you know you're you're very analytical and you're leveraging technology, ultimately you're doing this for a reason. And if you're an Amazon or any yeah. of those those companies that are similar in the way that they use technology, you're doing it uh, to serve the customer and to understand the customer yeah. and to make life more. Uh, simple and entertaining and and uh, easier for the customer. Mm.
0: So, Mike, are you, re- you going to, you know, when this all, you know, when it all loosens up and we can all tr- travel again, are you going to get back on a plane and f- continue to fly all, all over the world?
1: Absolutely. Oh, you are? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't think I don't think the world is better served if everyone stays where they belong. Um, I think that's a very dangerous, antiquated way of seeing the world. The world is globalized now, and and globalization is our strength. And this is not the political side of globalization, markets, and trade treaties. I just meant the interconnections of cultures and people and civilizations and ideas. Mm -hmm. When you look at the moments in history where you had the most rapid advance of Technology and science and culture and art—it isn't those moments of isolation where cultures and and cities put up walls and barriers. It's when they intermixed and uh, shared ideas and people travelled and brought goods and, and 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 poetry and art between places. So I'm I'm incredibly hungry for that world to return, but I know it's a different one.
0: Um, it's been really cool to catch up with you mike and hear about um your perspective today and also the the future of mike walsh um i think it's um and, and i want to <laughs> i want to wish you uh, all the best with your your show too because i think that's really really cool um and it's cool that you've Thanks. done that on the back of the current situation and you know you kind of got a good audience building there as well which is really cool um it's been really insightful and i really value uh your time so
1: thank you mike Likewise, I look forward to us having a coffee again
0: in person. Yeah, Yeah, I'm desperate to hug somebody, so you might be the victim. (laughs) (laughs) All right, dude, take care of yourself. Thank you.
2: Bye.
0: Design Your Life is constantly trying to provide our listeners with engaging and helpful content. I talk with amazing people from all over the world about their lives and their careers, and I truly enjoy that. But in order to improve what we do and provide you all with content which you want to hear, we would love to hear from you. There's a link to a quick survey in the show notes and on the Design Your Life Instagram page. In three weeks time, we will pick one respondent to win a one-hour personal coaching session with me. Thank you and stay safe. If you enjoyed this episode and found it inspiring, please don't forget to review or subscribe